Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I'll bring my memories. Hello listeners, welcome to the Football History Podcast and welcome to a show that I've been looking forward to for some time. Um, the 1974 World Cup is, from a personal point of view, one that I remember very, very well. It was the first World Cup I ever really followed and it was also in bright Technicolor. We had our first colour television at the age of 13. So the story that we're going to un- unpick today is one that um, I feel like I slightly lived as the first proper football tournament that uh, I, I personally follow. Joining me today is author of a wonderful new book, Zaire, 1974. It's Neil Andrews, friend of the show. Welcome back to the show, Neil. Hey, Nick. How you doing? Yeah, good, good. Um, this is a wonderful book that you've written here, mate. It's, it unpicks the story of first African team of, of, of note, I suppose. Uh, I know Morocco had been in the 1970 World Cup, Um Maybe I'm distinguishing North Africa from Sub-Saharan Africa in, in, in that sense. But certainly it was the first um, African country in the fullest sense of the word that I remember seeing at all. So they, it, was, it, was a real, um, it was a really enjoyable, well-written book to, to read through the, the leading. Um, the politicking that produced this situation was quite fascinating. The, 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 kind of, uh, the, the change of the old guard in FIFA to allow more African members, Neil, which then obviously allowed Zaire to qualify for the West German World Cup in '74. It's 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 a it's a deep and dark story, isn't it? Backstory. It is. So the story actually starts way before 1974. So Egypt were the first African country uh, way back in the 1930s. They won right. the game, and then um, in 1966 the African nations um, boycotted the World Cup because they weren't guaranteed a place in England. 
Um, and as a result, I think it was 66 members all boycotted. And Zaire, mm. or um, the Republic of Congo, as they were then known, joined FIFA just in time to join this boycott. Um, so come 1970, they were guaranteed a place which went to Morocco. And it was managed by um, Blagoj Vidnic, who also managed Zaire. Now, that's an interesting story in itself, because he took over, similarly to the current Morocco coach, shortly before the tournament. Because the coach who actually got them there had a heart attack and actually had to kind of pull back from his involvement with the squad. So they found this former Yugoslav goalkeeper who took them out there, uh, changed their attacking style, and won Africa's first point um, against Bulgaria in their last game, which was essentially a dead rubber. But they're mm. best remembered for um, going ahead against West Germany and you know putting up a real fight before losing to Peru 3-0 a very emotionally charged contest because there'd been an earthquake in Peru, a uh, major natural disaster, and the Peru team almost forfeited the game. Um, but come 1974, you know, um, Zaire were one of the powerhouses of African football. They had won the African Championship in 1968, and they'd also uh, won it in 1974, shortly before the uh, World Cup. And together with Zambia, they were kind of seen as the new kind of shining lights from sub-Saharan Africa. And they actually were drawn against Morocco in the final group games. Um, so by then, Bidinich had become Zaire manager. And it was between them, Zambia and Morocco for this place in West Germany. And it was quite a kind of funny mini tournament in that Morocco surprisingly lost to Zambia in the first game. Uh, Zaire then um, beat... Uh, Zambia home and away so we're in a strong position uh, yeah. then Morocco beat Zambia in the return game and so it was all to play for when the two sides met and it was quite a should we say physical contest and Zaire ran out three near winners Morocco then protested and sent FIFA loads of videos saying the game should be replayed which the general secretary at the time turned around and said well they scored three goals so at least one of them must have been good and so Morocco <laughs> pulled out of the final group game. So Zaire went with a perfect record into the World Cup. Um, and that's when the trouble really started for the players. But, you know, at the time they were kind of really on a high um, and were really considered the strongest team in Africa at the time, which many people don't realise because all they remember is the results in West Germany and some of the antics of the players in question, um, which is kind of, should we say, dented their reputation somewhat? Yeah, I mean, I remember Zaire being presented as, as stereotypes. I mean, I would have been 13 years old when I watched the 74 World Cup. And as I said, it, it made a huge impression on me for, for a number of reasons, um, including this, this, this side from a place of which I, I knew little. One thing I really liked about your book is the Football and history are bound together, listeners. You, you, as much as we all want politics and uh, history and football to be separate strands, they are actually intertwined, Neil. And, and your book does a really good job of explaining uh, the, the history of the Bel Belgian Congo as its original colonial name. A fairly horrific in, uh, history, in, in truth, of, of Belgian colonialism and then independence and then a transformation under a crucial player in the drama that would unfold in Germany, which was a dictator by the name of Mobutu, who um, was engaged in, I think it's, you could describe it as the, an authenticity campaign, a kind of a, a nation-building exercise, Neil, of, of trying to take 
away a colonial past and relaunch the Congo, Democratic Republic of Congo, as an African Zaire, or, you know, a kind of a relaunch, a 2.0 relaunch of a country almost. Very brutally done. And, you know, he, let's just say he rode roughshod over any opponents that got in his way. Pretty much, yeah. Ironically, I share a birthday with Mobutu. Um, which I discovered quite early on in writing this book. I, I couldn't possibly comment on that, Andrew. Uh, the, the, um, the, the kind of the comparisons may stop there, but um, I hope they do. You, you, you're right in that. Um, you know, he had a very interesting background as well. You know, he wanted to be a journalist, ended up in the military. By pure chance, he ended up aligned with the kind of revolution that took place um, for independence. And then slowly but surely, because he was put in this position of power with the army, he had the ability to kind of seize power. But he seemed mm. reluctant to seize power. So there was this period, you know, the Congo crisis, where Patrice Labamba and a few others in Katunga, you know, wanted to kind of break away, you know, were fighting it out and he sat in the background. And then all of a sudden he came to the fore and, you know, took over. Um, should we say stabbed his friends in the back, to put it politely? literally yeah. Um, yeah, yeah um but he'd noticed you know how ghana had gained independence and used the football team to establish a national identity and what do you got to remember about the belgian congo that it's made up of multiple different tribes it's got multiple different dialects um you know and it's really you know it was a real mix of authenticities and mm. so, you know, you needed this common thing to kind of get behind. And so, you know, he put it into football. So football was the thing. And, you know, he aligned himself closely with the football team. So, you know, when the football team did well, then, you know, he was doing well. And for, you know, the average religious, should we say, for want of a better word, you know, aligned, mm. the, you know, the team with Mobutu. Um, so... He put a lot of money in. He brought all the players back from Belgium, well, all the ones they could afford. So they actually brought players out of their contract with the big Belgian clubs because many of the Congolese footballers have actually, you know, emigrated to Belgium. You know, there was a lots of tour games after, you know, independence. You know, all the big teams of Belgium would go there and they'd come back, you know, with the best players kind of thing. Um, you know, they got most of them back and, you know, all of a sudden they became a powerhouse overnight, winning the um, African Championship in 1968. The reason why they didn't end up in the World Cup in 1970, incidentally, was simply because someone forgot to post their entry form. And when they <laughs> protested to FIFA, FIFA turned around and said, no, it's too late. So they actually did not compete in qualification for the 1970 World Cup, which kind of set things back. There was a change of manager. So the manager at the time was a Hungarian. And they then got a Frenchman in who had real lack of experience, went to the African Championships in 1970 and did really badly. And this is kind of when Vidinich came in. Um, the aim was to qualify for 74. You know, they built on the 72 championships uh, where they reached the semi-finals and surprisingly lost. Um, and then won it, you know, in 74. And at the same time, the club sides, uh, so TP Mazembe, for example, AS Vita Club, they were doing really well in the kind of African version of the European Cup as well. So it was a real boon time for Zairean football. Um, you know, it shone very, very brightly. A boom economy as well. This one, I mean, money money lies at the heart of this story. 
um, both sloshing around certain quarters, those who are in charge of a country. I, I believe copper is its um, most uh, valuable natural resource. And like so much of Africa, Neil, it's potentially so wealthy and yet it is riddled with corrupt um, officialdoms. Uh, let's, let's put it that way. It's, it's something of a stereotype in, in some ways. But when you read this account of the, uh, you know, the way that the players were promised huge sums, you know, um, sums beyond the imagination of the average uh, Congolese um, individual and players will all come from invariably poor backgrounds, which obviously never materialised because the expense accounts, the, the bonuses, the, the, the money that was being allocated by this dictator who wanted national glory was being frittered away by those that, that, that ran the squad. And, and money or lack of uh, payments would lie at the heart of what would actually start with high hopes in Germany for Zaire, but would actually spin off the rails, uh, you know, f- uh, come off the rails quite quickly um, through lack of po- uh, payments. So, yeah, so professionalism as such didn't really exist. Um, you know, you had professional clubs, but you didn't mm. get a weekly wage. You got the equivalent of bonuses, you know, and you'd get $100 here, $100 there. And it had been an ongoing problem in the national team. So there were free players who, you know, were actually banned for a couple of years for, you know, demanding they got paid to appear for the national team. But following the results in 1972, when, you know, they failed to bring home the title, you know, this this was kind of waived and money became a big thing. You know, even mm. players on the fringes suddenly found themselves at the mercy of their clubs. You know, there was one player in particular who was transferred for a minor league team because he kept scoring against another team whose owners didn't like it. Um, yeah. But, you know, you, you had this kind of situation where, you know, promises were made. So when they won the African Championship and qualified for the World Cup, Mobutu kept upping the promises. And the reason why he did that was because the president of Zambia was promising his players, you know, glory and fortune. So Mobutu felt he had to do the same. Um, but contrary to popular belief, you know, the players' bonuses as such were the main issue. You know, they didn't go away empty-handed. So they were all promised the car, um, a house in a posh part of Kinshasa. And they were all promised the foreign holiday. The holiday didn't um, kind of come through. But all the players got a house and they all got a car. They all got a green Passat, which uh, Mobutu got from Volkswagen free of charge. And the houses, (laughs) they, they just got from a building company that were building them. But this area, you know, in Kinshasa became known as, um, you know, the leopard neighborhood because all the leopards yeah. lived there. So they got that. Unfortunately, they didn't get the money, which then gave them the, should we say, the benefit of being able to upkeep the car and the house. So most of them ended up having to sell. Um, but the reason for that was when they went to Germany, they were given kind of like pocket money, etc. And the electrical shops in the town where they were staying at the time, you know, did great business. But, you know, they were promised a certain amount but then they discovered just how much people were paying the countries and the, you know, the other players for their bonuses. But it's worth noting that Zaire weren't the only team that all, you know, went on strike during that World Cup, which Germany also did as well. To the point yeah, that yeah. before the tournament started, the West German players actually went on strike and the West German FA actually notified FIFA that they may change the entire 22-man squad. Um, so, you know... Money and bonuses was a big thing at the time. You know, the Scotland team, for example, stood to make £16,000 uh, between them if they won the World Cup. 
whereas some of the other teams, um, like the Netherlands and Germany, ended up standing to, you know, make, uh, I think it was 50,000. Um, so, you know, there was a huge difference, but these figures were kind of slowly coming out. So it's the first time the World Cup was, shall we say, marred by um, commercialism and this kind of monetary issues that used to swirl around because, you know, the World Cup started getting sponsored and people started making money and it wasn't the players that was getting the money per se. There's an interesting account. You go into the the kind of pre-tournament politics uh, ahead of the 74 World Cup where the uh, the the election of Joao Havelange, uh, who became Mister Mister FIFA before Sepp Blatter, um, and but there was this kind of old school, um, equally as uh, stuffy and equally as set in their ways, in a sense, with Sir Stanley Rouse, the the English um, you know uh, head of FIFA previously. Uh, but Havelange very much identified the coming new world of, of world football with the power of the. African and, and I suppose Asian vote to outweigh the historic imbalance of Europe and, and South America. So Zaire really, um, they found their niche as a result of, of um, what we came to see with FIFA in time, the the increasing power of, of the world, so to speak. As, as it, I think what struck me reading that account, Neil, was uh, it's almost like you're transitioning between the old world of football and the very glimmerings of the modern world of high money, um, super global finance, you know, it's, it's almost like a, it's in the little twilight zone somewhere between the old and the new, this, this tournament. Yeah, it is. It's very much on the cusp of the old world, new world, like you say. Um, you know, the world of football was changing um, and the World Cup was changing. And mm. for Stanley Rouse, you know, it, it was beyond his capabilities to embrace that commercialism because he was yeah. old school as well. Um, and he, you know, he was also not very popular with African countries because of his stance over South Africa. Um, and he wasn't really a politician um, like his opponent. And so he couldn't converse in French, for example, you know, with ease, you know, he, he couldn't really understand this, this kind of uh, new way of uh, getting elected, yeah. basically. He wasn't helped by a few of the European FAs um, kind of turning their back on the European bloc. France in particular, who at the time were a bit annoyed that the two associations they founded, the um, the Olympic Association and FIFA, were in the hands of, you know, Knights of the Realm from the UK. So there was still that old, you know, France versus yeah, the mentality going the on. historic so, rivalry, yeah. Yeah, um, it was a very, very interesting time, you know, and because Vidinich was involved, you know, um, and Adidas got involved and things like this, it was really, you know, this was when, you know, you started to see the same advertising holdings around, you know, the grounds, whereas at the 1974 World Cup, yeah, alongside the big names, you saw, you know, adverts for British Caledonian, Ferguson TV rentals, and, you yeah. know, Mabutu even paid for some for Zaire with, you know, go to Zaire and Zaire peace. You wouldn't see that these days. No, I, mean, I remember seeing local German companies advertise, you know, ones that weren't known in England. So it was, it was still something in touch with football's origins. It, that would change, obviously, in time. But Zaire would, would come into the West German World Cup um, as a better side, Neil. I mean, I, I took time to look at the um, the Scotland game, the, which would finish as a 2-0 win for Scotland, mm. um, which I, I watched at the, uh, when, you know, at the time. I haven't really seen it since. Um, 
But I think what what really came over to me, having read the book and having watched the footage again, was that at the time Zaire presented as slightly um, naive, um, exotic and naive, um, fun almost. But when you look at the performance, particularly I think against Scotland, which is probably where they were at their at their put their best face forward at the start mm-hmm. of the competition, they were a decent side. Uh, there were some decent moves, and you know. One or two moments where on another day the ball would have gone into the net, and you'd have a different game on your hands rather than a two nil loss. It, it's really I, interesting because there was not the memory I had, if you know what yeah. I mean. Yeah, memories are skewed, aren't they? So it's not helped by you know every four years you see the Zaire footage of the free kick um, against Brazil. Well, yeah, um, and you yeah. you also see Kazadi Mwamba's mistake for Joe Jordan's goal. And in 2006, you know, there was a documentary on the Scottish team of that year, you know, and Gordon McQueen said, you know, the goalkeeper wasn't the best and Willie Morgan called him a pub side. If you actually Mm. watch the game, at the end of it, Scotland are flinging on. Um, You know, uh, Zaya were a bit rash in front of goal. Um, You know, Nadeo Malumba, who scored nine goals in the African Championship, who was on fire, missed a golden opportunity in the second half, for example. Um, you know, and Harvey got his palms stung by a long range effort as well. Um, so they had their chances, and right at the death, you know, uh, Harvey had to be on his toes to turn over an indi- uh, indirect free kick. So, you know, they had a lot of chances on goal. And if you watch the second half, you know, the performance by Kasadi Mwamba, yes, he made a mistake for the Joe Jordan goal, and you know, everyone was like stopped for offside. And, you know, it was a goalkeeping error. You can't get away from that. But his performance mm. in the second half is amazing. You know, he stopped shot after shot from Peter Lorimer. You know, some superb saves. You know, he denied Dennis Law. Um, the defenders, so Bawanga, Teshimen, and Lebola Boba, who were the centre-halves, they got their kind of measure of Joe Jordan. And he became increasingly less effective to the point that Billy Bremner actually slowed the game down towards the end to cling on for those, you know, two points and with the two goal lead, which would be a mistake going further on into the tournament. But, you know, Zaire played really well and the press reports the following day reflected that, you know, people, you know, were saying that they were surprised. And Jim Holton, you know, the Scottish centre-half, you know, he actually said that Zaire surprised them a lot better than, you know, they gave credit for. And even the manager, Willie Norman, said that, you know, they'd improved tremendously since he saw them in the African nations. So they had speed. They had, you know, two wingers um, in Kokoko um, and also Mayenga, who were really quick and really deadly and dangerous. And, you know, their defence, you know, the centre-half pairing were really good. Um, and they just lacked a bit of, um, should we say, uh, the blood, they had a rush of blood to the head every time, you know, they got near the box, you know, and they were snapping at their shots. And, you know, if they had been a bit calmer, I think they would have, you know, at least scored a goal on Harvey. To his credit, you know, I think he had at least four or five saves he had to make throughout the course of the game. So it wasn't the one-sided traffic that people believed. No. And, you know, it wasn't the kind of, um, you know, the myth that Scotland lost it because they couldn't score against Zaire. You know, they purposely break something because they come in back into the game. I mean, just to, just to say, when I say this is a totally neutral Englishman, um, this is a decent Scottish side now. This, this was, I mean, you've mentioned a few names there. Anyone that knows 1970s English football knows that the championship sides of the day were often composed, had a strong Scottish 
component, you know, and this 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 Scottish side qualified. England didn't, which I will recall. Um, so this was a decent side. So this was a decent showing against a strong and quite physical um, Scottish side that will be playing a style. And I think the contrast came probably with Yugoslavia next up. But the Scotland mm. played a, a pretty physical style that Zaire wouldn't have been as used to. Would that be a fair comment, do you think? Yep. Um, so Vidinic actually said after the game, my, don't they play rough football? You know, and I think in the first half they got beaten up a bit. He was, he was to try going to Glasgow on a Saturday night. Yeah. <laughs> Zabi got clattered a number of times by Joe Jordan, you know, and a few yeah. fights broke out, etc. But, um, you know, Dennis Law acted as kind of like the peacemaker throughout. The peacemaker. And, you know, played yeah. the game with, you know, a big smile on his face kind of thing. You know, and it was, yeah. I think the result was probably a fair reflection. Um, you know, but the performance as a whole and, you know, even, you know, the press reports you read at the time, you know, this wasn't the side people think as, you know, one of the worst World Cup sides ever. This was a decent side who could, on their day, could have given anyone a bit of trouble and they did. I think I think that's a fair a fair assessment. The the tournament would spin out of control from the Zaya point of view in the, by ahead of the next game. Famous result, uh, Yugoslavia nil, a nine, Zaire nil. Um, I think that's still a record um, scoreline in a World Cup finals tournament. Um, but there were preliminary, um, you know, issues off the field about, uh, as we've touched on already, money going not going to where the players thought it might be going, their bonuses not being paid, and and so on. They, they didn't exactly go into the game in a happy frame of mind, Neil, did they? No. Um, so there was a lot of machinations going on behind the scenes as well. So it wasn't just, you know, the funds, you know, the first inkling came after the Scotland game when they wanted to go out and spend some of the money and they were told to stay in mm. the rooms. Um, and it got progressively worse. You know, they were only allowed to go out to train, uh, essentially confined to the hotel rooms. But during that time, you know, a local Congolese man who emigrated to Germany turned up, to, you know, to speak to his kind of um, brethren, as it were, and showed him yeah. the German newspapers and translated where, you know, the German side were getting all these bonuses, which didn't help. So they had a meeting, you know, they threatened to go on strike. Um, they got a phone call from Mobutu, which, you know, would you ever want to take a phone call from Mobutu in such a situation? No, no, I, not having read the account. No, no. no. I mean... Let's let's, they, let's let's put it out there. They were they were their, their, their lives and their families' lives were threatened if they didn't play for the honour of Zaire, as it was it was put to them. I mean, that was what was on the line, wasn't it? That that was was a common theme throughout. I think you know you should play for Zaire for you know the pride and you know the respect kind of thing. But mm. as this continued, you know the players were talking about going on strike. You know they were you know upset about their bonuses. They kept talking to Vinich. They kept talking to the association officials who was supposedly had the money, but weren't even watching Zaire's game. They were off going, making business deals and doing all sorts of diplomatic kind of agreements while they were in Germany. Um, but it got to the point that, you know, on the day of the game, you know, they travelled and Bidinic was noted by one of the players, was not in the same frame of mind as he usually was. And when mm. they arrived, he was actually whisked away by, um, you know, the the association officials and security guards and um, the team talk was actually given by one of Mobutu's cronies in the dressing room and they actually changed the side so the side that went out was not the side uh, Vidinich had chosen 
Uh, Mayanga, who played well against Scotland, was dropped to the bench, for example. Um, there was another player, Kembo Kembo, who wasn't 100% fit, was brought into the side as well. And, you know, it was kind of in the dressing room, the goalkeeper, Gazzardi, you know, wanted to go on strike and didn't want to play. And Tabalandu, the reserve goalkeeper, remembers that at one point they only had had nine players. So to avoid playing, the entire squad decided to play hide and seek in various parts of the stadium. And, you know, radio calls are going around trying to find them, etc. And essentially the reason why they played was they're in the dressing room and, you know, a browbeaten Vidinic walked in and explained just how dire the situation was that they didn't play, mm. you know, it meant real problems. So when they went out, they went out not in the best frame of mind, like you said. And you could tell in the opening exchanges, they didn't really care. And it was only when Yugoslavia started scoring, they realised perhaps they should do something about this. But by then it was too late um, because Gazzardi, the goalkeeper, was replaced, um, I think it was in 22nd minutes after the third goal by Tubalandu, who was only five foot four. One of the Yugoslavian uh, midfielders was actually a foot taller than him. Um, and he'd only had one cap before, and that was against Mauritius in the African Nations Cup. But he was considered to be one of the favourites or one of Mobutu's advisors. And then Dai, Alumba, the striker, actually saw on the bench that it was one of Mobutu's cronies dressed in a tracksuit who made the substitution, not Bidinich. And there was a lot of um, conspiracy theories, obviously Bidinich being Yugoslavian, that he weakened his side so they'd have a better chance going through at the expense of Scotland, etc. But there was a lot going on. And in the middle of this change, one of the most funniest things in the World Cup was that Mwepu Alunga walked up to the referee and booted him up the backside. And the um, the referee turned round, couldn't recognise Mwepu Alunga, so turned, uh, sent off Enday instead. And poor old Enday, you know, even though the Yugoslavian players were telling the referee it wasn't him, got a red card. And because it wasn't captured on the TV screens, even though every journalist said it was Mwepu Alunga, and I got banned for a year and um, couldn't play in the next game. So after 22 minutes, they were 3-0 down and down to 10 men. And Kazadi had actually been one of their best players up to that point. Um, but it was a very fractured performance. So their midfielder... Against a uh, decent Manon side, Neil. Against a decent Yugoslavian side. side. But, you know, you could see after the first two goals, Manu Mwamu, the uh, midfielder, tried to take mm. on the entire Yugoslavian team by himself, you know. So there was a few players there that were, you know, Lots hurting over this. Yeah, but yeah. Um, as the game progressed, you know, they did have chances because Yugoslavia suddenly became very ragged thinking they could score for fun. And at one point they were scoring for fun. But mm. at the other end, you know, the Yugoslavian goalkeeper had to be on his toes because, you know, they kept breaking and threatening to score every now and then. But the, the second half was very disjointed. You know, yes, they lost 9-0. Was it the worst performance in the World Cup? Hungary beat El Salvador 10-1 in 82. And to be fair, I would say the Brazil 7-1 defeat at Germany in the semi-final was a much pathetic, more pathetic mm. performance than the Zaire one. You know, because, you know, Brazil, the favourites for the World Cup, you know, Zaire, not favourites for the World Cup, no confidence, no uh, motivation, down to 10 men playing against a much stronger technical team. And, you know, they were on a hiding to nothing. And as Bawanga said, you know, we knew we'd lose. We just didn't realise we'd lose in such a bad way. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Keep in mind that lives are on the line here quite uh, with a dictator that was not um, averse to um, executions as a, as a regular part of his, of his um, government policy, so to speak. So it does put a different, um, it's a kind of mix of, of comic and tragic, I think is, is probably the best way to put it. Um, I mean, there, were, there was a, a spin-off. Uh, the 9-0 the loss was seen as a national humiliation for, for Zaire Neil and, um, you know, Mobutu, the dictator, made his feelings quite plain to the, to the squad in the aftermath of, of, that, of that loss. He did, yeah. Um, and this is kind of where things go a bit awry in terms of the truth. Um, so when I was doing the research, you know, there's a lot mm. of players that have changed their stories over the years. Uh, you know, um, certain players say one thing, certain players say the other. So it really is kind of not separating the wheat from the chaff, but trying to establish what went on. Um, so Mawepu Olunga has said, you know, their, their families were threatened, etc. Um, yeah. Others said, you know, there were no threats. You know, people were saying that they sent the bodyguards out there. Well, Mobutu didn't have to. The bodyguards were already there. Um, but Mobutu was clear that, you know, they all had to play against Brazil and they all had to play for the honour of Zaire and they couldn't yeah. lose by more than three goals. That was the common thing. Um, Vidinic already knew his time was up. He already told the team that, you know, this would be his last game. He would not be returning to Zaire because his family had been threatened. So he actually uh, evacuated his family uh, to Paris, I believe it was, and he would stay mm. on um, in the tournament. So, you know, the threats were there and, you know, they had to perform against Brazil, basically. They were, you know, they kind of made their protest and, you know, lost on purpose, for want of a better phrase, uh, without actually throwing the game. Yeah. And, you know, they I mean, were they facing were... the ramifications. They would face a wasn't one of the great Brazilians signed, but it was still Brazil and it's still a World Cup. And it would finish 3-0 to, to Brazil, uh, allowing them to qualify. And I suppose some measure of honour um, fulfilled from the Zairean point of view, I guess. I mean, they didn't score a goal during the course of the tournament, but at least it wasn't a, a trouncing as they'd uh, endured against Yugoslavia. Actually, one of the players said they thought they played better against Scotland, uh, Brazil than they did against Scotland. And having watched all right. three games, I would actually agree with that. The defensive performance against Brazil was superb. Um, Boanga and Labilo in the middle, they were kind of like two rocks. You know, they couldn't be beaten. And you could tell that the camaraderie was back. You know, every time a challenge went in, every time they turned the ball behind the corner, there would be high fives, everything. You know, there, there was a real camaraderie between them and a real bonding. But... You know, 
they were throwing themselves in front of the Brazil attacks. You know, they were launching mm. attacks of their own. Um, early in the second half, uh, Giancarlo Tomba came very close to scoring with a 25-yard free kick. It just dipped away at the last minute. You know, this was a completely different side. And, you know, again, on another day, they may have scored and they were unlucky to lose by three. You know, they had, I wouldn't say the referee favoured the Brazilians, but the Brazilians were getting away with murder um, to a certain mm. degree. Um, you know, uh, shortly before that third goal, again, with all the um, controversy and the conspiracy theories that Gazzardi let the goal in, I think um, I think it was the Times journalist said it was a goal not worthy of the Watney Cup, let alone the World Cup. But, you know, seconds before that, um, the Brazilian forward that came on, Mirandinha, not the one that played for Newcastle, actually no. kicked Casadi full, full on in the face going for the ball. You know, similar to what happened to the Iran goalkeeper recently, but back then, you know, there was none of this concussion loss. And Casadi no. was that cold. He was that cold on the floor to the point that some of the players thought he'd died. Um, you know, and it took a few minutes for the game to, you know, restart. And he had a handkerchief and he's wiping blood away from his face. And it was the next attack they scored and he was absolutely furious you could see him actually hitting the ground um it kind of did bounce up in front of him and he kind of did mistime it but you know he probably had double vision or something like that because it was a real hefty challenge <laughs> right, you know, run, it off, goals, run it off run it off yeah he didn't really have a chance <laughs> with the other two so you know rivellino hit a, a drive from the edge of the box and jarzinho also scored you know a pretty decent goal but um Brazil, you know, apart from Marino Chagas, you know, who didn't look like a Brazilian with his blonde flowing locks, who mm. was superb throughout, you know, they were a real, you know, they were they were a shadow of the former self. And when Valderimo scored that goal, the way he celebrated it, you know the dancing that the Brazil team did mm. the other night. Yeah, recently, yeah, yeah. It yeah. was akin to that. Valderrama celebrated like he'd won the World Cup in the most <laughs> embarrassing manner in the most embarrassing fashion. And, you know, you could see the relief on the Brazilian players because they were going out and they kind of knew they were going out. And there was all these rumours that at half-time that Vidinich and Kazadi had, you know, arranged to concede a goal to knock Scotland out because Scotland, you know, Billy Bremner in particular, had been quite vocal towards the Zion yeah. players, should we say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. However, you know, both games were played at the same time. And if Scotland had scored, Yugoslavia would have gone out. So those conspiracy theories don't hold much water. Um, but, you know, everyone remembers the free kick from that game. And, you know, the reasons behind that are interesting, to say the least. Shall we Shall we expand on that? That's probably the most iconic moment, in a sense. I mean, the, the 9-0 loss is, is obviously one part of it, but the free kick, mm. which was portrayed at the time, and as I say, I watched it with a 13-year-old's eyes, as a basic um, misunderstanding of the rules of football, you know, and there was a kind of a, a comic quality to the commentary, um, and it was presented as a, as a, as a joke by a, a clown moment by a joke side almost. And I think that was probably yeah. the benefit of time, Neil, and also the benefit of reading your book. I think that was that was well, harsh doesn't do it justice. I think it was loaded against the Zaire side. John Watson um, actually called it a moment of African equinance. And mm. I think that was very, very unfair. Uh, very, very few newspaper reports the following day actually mentioned it. Most of the newspaper reports the following day were very, very complimentary 
about Zaire and very damning about Brazil. You know, everyone mentioned how they defended. I think the um, Irish Times said, you know, it was like a forest of Zaire legs in the box, you know, every time Brazil got the ball. Um, you know, and I think the Times in the UK actually said, you know, Zaire played to the best that they could possibly do. and But Brazil was so awful that if Zaire were going to get pounded for their 9-0 defeat, then Brazil should be pounded for their, you know, poor performance throughout the World Cup. Mm. Mm. Um, but again, that's overlooked. So with the free kick, it's funny because I, again, doing the research, Uwepo um, Lunga, bless him, because he died uh, a couple of years back. Right. It's, the story kept changing shall we say so initially you know it was about you know the threat and you know we lost 4-0 and he was time wasting then he kind of changed it as kind of like a protest against um the, the government of Mobutu and against Mobutu as he said you know Mobutu reveled in our victories now he can yeah be despairing mm. in our defeats kind of thing mm. there was also this theory that in previous years gone by in the kind of Belgian Congo, there was a rule that was in play that on free kicks, if no one touched the ball after, I think it was either three or 10 seconds, you know, it was open play again. Okay. And, you know, the other one was simply that, you know, there was a, a complete misunderstanding of the rules kind of thing, you know, as you say. However, about 10 minutes before that, there was a free kick awarded to Brazil in a similar situation, albeit on the other side of the box. And on that occasion, it was blocked. They took the free kick and it was blocked. And the person that blocked it was Muwepu Ulunga, who stood at the end of the wall. And as soon as like, it was tapped off to the other Brazilian player, he had come charging out and blocked it. So clearly his instructions on the free kick was, you come charging out as soon as they take mm. it. Um, because Zaire had defended, this was I think the fourth or fifth free kick around the box Zaire defended, and no one had run out before that. So this kind of African ignorance thing doesn't hold water whatsoever. If truth be known, I think Moepo Longo found himself in no man's land and decided just to punt the ball down the opposition end to waste time. Um, and, you know, he, he, yeah, he, he did admit that he felt foolish after he did it. Um, I think it was a time-wasting thing. And I think, you know, well, he did it, it on purpose. Akin to the modern tactic of standing over the ball to prevent a quick free kick. I want, you know, not quite the same thing, I know, but um, at the time it was, I remember the ITV coverage, they used to do kind of little blooper loops, you know, of a funny yeah. moments as they saw I me. Mean, and that was often used if memory serves. Sometimes I'd even set it to music and it was presented as a comic moment, um, which I think was, was, was a, it was a hard thing to shake off for that Zaire side. Clearly, clearly a much better side than the the media presented at the time and has been allowed over over the years to set in people's minds, myself included, Neil, because, I mean, that was that was always yeah. the impression that I had. The, the, you know, if you take that free kick out of context, yes, it looks silly. I remember laughing at it as a kid as well. Um, mm. But there was other elements to that kick. I mean, they were all in that kick, and it took a good two three minutes before um the weapon even charged from the wall you know it kept you know stop start stop start there was an issue in the wall with um jarzinho had joined the wall and he was upsetting the wall um you know he was upsetting several of the zyrian players to the point he actually hit one of them it's pulled in the face which was caught on the camera and wasn't sent off or anything like that which caused the ref to charge over so you know everyone knows when you know free kicks should we say high tension free kicks 
are never taken cleanly, are they? They're always stop, start, people run out, yeah. etc. This yeah. was no different. And I think, you know, given the benefit of the doubt, I think he was looking to waste time and, you know, had had enough. And then, yeah, like I said, found himself in no man's land and thought the best approach was to boot it. Uh, but, you know, he took it with good grace. There was a, you know, if you remember fantasy football Phoenix in the flames, he um, yeah. he recreated the incident um, and showed a good sense of humour about it. Um, the, his teammates had no idea what he was doing um, in the crowd, two of them, you know. And I was sitting next to another one. Um, oh, that's it, Mavuba. Mavuba, right. Mavuba. Um, he, um, he was sitting in the crowd room. And, you know, he was that they were embarrassed by it as well. And it was a case of, you know, what was he doing? And he never really spoke about it afterwards. But that was the thing, because when they returned home, they kind of disappeared. Um, mm. And no one really, you know, not really knew what happened to them, but they kind of disappeared off the radar till about 2000 when people start tracking them down and these stories suddenly came to light. I mean, that was going to be my, my next... Um question the aftermath obviously that would finish the the Zaire World Cup um three games played I think it's 14 goals conceded no points and I presume a flight back to a, a grim uh, reception back in in Zaire the the manager Vid, Vidinich he he was good on his promise never to return to the country I take it after the World Cup I believe so although um he went to manage Colombia uh, but he got involved right. with Adidas so he was friends with um, Horse Dazzler, um, Addy's yeah. son, and that's how they got all the kit for Morocco and the kit for Zaire as well. The you know the Adidas kit is quite famous now, um, and he ended up working for Le Coq Sportif, that was an Adidas brand, and they ended up wearing Le Coq Sportif again in Zaire. So um, he may have returned. There's no record of him returning, um, right. but not why Mabutu was alive. Um, so I think. You know, he he feared for his life like the rest of them. Um, you know, but the stories, you know, the, the stories were still exaggerated. You know, there was a story about them licking their team bus and driving back to Africa, you know, which sounds great. But when you actually consider the distance between Germany and Africa, it's, it's, longer, it's yeah. longer than like, London to India. Um, <laughs> you know, London to Delhi is shorter than, you know, Germany back to Kinshasa. You know, the bus yeah. would have broken down about halfway across the Saharan desert. So, and aside from going through all those different countries, it was, you know, they were already told to fly back on the presidential jet, that kind of thing, you know. So, you know, they arrived in the middle of the night to no one to greet them. And they had to rely on the generosity of taxi drivers and bystanders at the airport to get them home. And the following wow. day, you know, there was this radio announcement that they all had to converge um, at a meeting point. They were taken to Mobutu's palace, given a stern warning and locked up for three days before being released. Um, wow. You know, um, and they weren't allowed to leave the country either. So, you know, their names were at the airports and the, the things they couldn't even go across the lake to the, um, what was the French Congo? You know, they were kind of prisoners to a certain extent. And then a lots of people, uh, an Australian journalist in particular, started asking, well, what happened to them? Did you shoot them or yeah. what? Um, yeah. And because they were holding the Rumble in the Jungle, um, a few of them suddenly got reprieve and they were invited to all these big events, um, you know, because Muhammad Ali had sort of win the African Nations Cup and wanted to meet a few of the players again. So they were allowed back out in public and all got tickets to see the Rumble in the Jungle, which ironically was paid for by their FIFA bonuses. So 
that was the closest they ever got to the FIFA bonuses by getting the free tickets. But um, after that, a lot of them stopped playing as well. I'd imagine they wouldn't do. And Mobutu, the dictator, continued on until finally um, ousted late in his life. You know, 1997, I think I read. Mm. Um, but he, di- he died shortly after being ousted as dictator. He fled to, I believe it was Morocco, Neil. Uh, he died of cancer, I believe. He did, yeah. Losing power. So a lot of the players, so, and, you know, Kazadi um, Mouamba, the goalkeeper, uh, died in poverty. Lebilo, uh, mm. I believe, still alive. Um, he was uh, recently, when I checked, put it that way. He, was, he lost his job in 1986 and descended into poverty and living in, um, you know, the slums of Kinshasa. Yeah. And when you yeah. say they asked to meet him, they were so embarrassed, you know, he refused to meet him, he used to hide from these dignitaries. Um, right. You know, the, the most famous ones in the Dime Lumber himself, you know, who everyone believed he'd died in an accident, a mining accident, was actually living in South Africa. And there was an African Nations Cup on and they bought him out of, you know, obscurity to reward him with a medal mm. and money. And when he got home, um, basically, Mobutu wanted the medal and the politician sent to get the medal was not happy with the rebuff and armed guards broke into his house shot him twice in the leg and killed his son um, wow. with a rifle butt. And he ended up uh, in not the best of hell for the rest of his life um, and was helped out by Samueto, funny enough, on quite a few occasions because he was in such a bad way. Um, and a lot of the players, you know, have suffered in recent years. Like I said, they all had to sell their cars. Um, but apart from one, one of them managed to keep the green um, Passat on the road and became a taxi driver. Um, for years after Mabunga Ekofa, who um, was still using it as a taxi. Um, the rest all moved out of this neighbourhood and kind of went their ways. Lots of them actually emigrated to France uh, and found certain success. So I think it's Bawanga Teshman's son who was actually, you know, they sent him to France for a better education. It was adopted by Mbappe's parents. So he actually related to Mbappe. Okay. Um, okay. But the you know the positive note was that Coco Tepe um, was sent to Germany. He was a um, you know worked for I think it was the Mercedes dealership in Germany. Was um, sorry, in Zaire was sent to Germany for a training course. Was allowed to leave the country. And while he was in Stuttgart, they discovered that there was this bloke working in the factory who played in the World Cup. So they gave him a trial, and he ended up playing for Stuttgart. And he actually played in the UEFA Cup game against Cologne. And Tony Woodcock. Um, so he actually, you know, was something one of, of a happy ending. Played at highest yeah. level, but a couple of them actually played lower league football in Belgium and France. Um, I think it was Mayenga played their uh, their captain as well. Um, he was out there, Kadumi Mantu. Um, so you know, and a lot of them ended up living in Belgium. But um, yeah, they're, they're, um, so Tibalandi, funnily enough, the small goalkeeper went on to become goalkeeping coach for the national side, that kind of thing. So some of them actually did carve careers out of the game, but a lot of them did find themselves, should we say, abandoned to the point that the government in 2010 was going to give them the surviving members of the squad and also the 1968 squad a pension, which, yeah. like in all African things, never actually materialised. And so I think it was 2016, um, kind of they formed their own kind of protest group that's still going and have managed to secure a pension for most of the players now. So at least they've got some income coming in. Real life tends to be short on really happy endings. Listeners, unfortunately, it's not like the movies. 
Um, it's a fascinating story and just interesting little touch with, I mean, we're recording this ahead of tomorrow night's uh, World Cup semi-final between France, including the aforesaid Mbappe and Morocco, North African side, um, certainly the furthest advanced African side um, in, in World Cup history. Um, and also England, obviously, um, recently uh, knocked out, but having beaten uh, Senegal in, in the round of 16, it's interesting uh, the journey that's been made by African football now, because, I mean, Zaire were always seen, presented, probably a better way to put it, as comic figures, but now it's taken seriously, isn't it, African football? Yeah, uh, as so, yeah so there was there's a lot, you know, they, they, a lot of claims they set back African football by 10 years, which is a joke in itself, you know. You know, Morocco won the first point um, in mm. 78. Tunisia won the first game when they beat Mexico 3-1. Cameroon went yeah. home undefeated in 1982. And then we all know yeah. what Cameroon did in 1990. Um, yep. And Morocco are now the first club to reach the semi-final from Africa. Ironically, they got to the World Cup by beating Democratic Republic of Congo, formerly known as Zaire, in the playoff. Um, <laughs> so they saw that as suitable revenge for 1974. So it's funny how these things work out. But yeah. Circles. You know, yeah. It yeah. is. I mean, on another day, another year, you know, I think they would have got much better results. I think they are seen as, you know, the the poorest team in the World Cup. And I think that's very, very unfair. I think there's been a lot worse teams at the World Cup down the years. Your book has done a fantastic job of um, restoring the reputation, Neil. Uh, it's called Zaire 74, The Rise and Fall of Mobutu's Leopards. You can get it on Amazon.co.uk. It's uh, Kindle, four ninety nine, or if you want the paperback, it's £12.95. I've read a good chunk of it ahead of today's conversation. It's brilliantly written. Um, hats off to you, mate. I, I, I've enjoyed reading it and in contrast to many books that we've reviewed on these shows i will finish it because it's um it's a it's a cracking read hats off to you mate well done cheers and there's some funny anecdotes there the, the, the on, joy then. of actually writing this you know there, there's some real funny moments and there's some real you know small moments you know that made yeah. it a joy to write as well so obviously you know forgetting to send in their application for the 1968 World Cup, for example. But, you know, they, you know, um, Roger Miller made his debut um, against Zaire yeah. in one of the qualifiers way back then. And Claudio Ranieri played one of his earlier games against them. But one of the, the funny things, you know, because everyone mentions the warm-up games as well, that they played against European club sides and the performances were terrible. You know, what people don't, you know, this this, this great thing about not putting things into context so they played a Swiss side in the Alps in the freezing rain and lost 4-1. Two days before, they were in Kinshasa, or three days before, they were in Kinshasa. And they were training in 50 degrees, Fahrenheit, you know, really hot weather. So they went from one extreme mm. to the other. And apparently the second half, they just wanted to go back into the changing rooms because it was so wet and cold. <laughs> but, you know, they played Fiorentina and lost 2-1. And that was the best game right. they played in the warm-ups. And, you know, people look at Fiorentina and say, you know, why didn't they do better? But Fiorentina, funny enough, played a number of warm-ups against uh, teams at the World Cup that year, including Argentina, uh, Poland, and who was the other one? There was one other as well. I think it was Uruguay. And they won yeah. them all. They beat every single World Cup country. And the Italian squad that year didn't contain a single Fiorentina player. And they failed to beat Poland and Argentina, which I thought was quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, you know, yeah, it's there's, there's some, you know, there's some funny stuff in there as well about, you know, some of the, some of the stuff they used to get up to just to actually make games and play games. But, you know, there's a lot of, um, collusion. There's a lot of, um, you know, say the dark side of African football, but football in the whole, you know, was a, a much different game back then. Reflective of life itself, mate. Um, but no, brilliant read, well written, and highly entertaining in my opinion. So, Zoya seventy four, rise and fall of Mobutu's leopards. Big thank you to you, Neil, for coming on the show. Um, the book is now available on Amazon, as we've said already. So, uh, get on it, get on it. Thank you, Neil. Cheers, thank you.